Thank you for tuning in and listening to The Diary of an Addict. Today's episode will be a little bit different in the fact that we don't have a firsthand story. Um, but I'm honored to have C.C. Estrada join us today. Um, I'm not really sure what her official title is, and I don't want to butcher it, so I'll let her tell you. Uh, can you tell us a little about yourself, C.C.? Sure. Um, so, like you said, Jack, I, my name is C.C. Estrada. Um, I am a licensed clinical social worker, um, and I work for Hendry County School District. Um, I've been with the school district as a mental health provider for going on six years now, um, but I have been in the mental health field for probably about 11 years now. So um, I've seen a lot. Um, most of my background um, has been working with adolescents struggling with mental health um, and uh, co-occurring disorders, so like substance use disorders. Um, and um, I love what I do. I love what I do. I've I've um, had the the pleasure to meet so many amazing people in the field, um, and. I just love helping people. So thank you for um, inviting me, and, and I'm, I'm excited to talk with you today. Well, thank you. Um, I'm interested to know about this, as we've said before, as I've stated to you before. Um, the co-occurring disorders, you know, like, that's a really big issue. And addiction is so much more than just, you know, drugs and alcohol when you get to it, like, I don't know if you've ever heard the term uh, dry drunk, where people quit drinking or they quit doing drugs, but then they don't try to like do any internal work on the issues that cause them to want to use or drink in the first place. And they just get stuck in this cycle of they'll stop for a minute and they'll do okay. And then they'll go right back into it. It's kind of like an analogy that I heard and stuck with me was that it's like pulling off a bandaid, you know, Stopping the drugs or stopping drinking is like pulling off the Band-Aid. But the real work begins when you try to fix the wound underneath. You know, you try to figure out what caused you to want to use the Band-Aid in the first place. So I'm really excited. Um, what what made you want to get into the mental health field in the first place? Um, I, it's, that's, I thought about that because I knew that, that topic was probably going to come up <laughs> and I've been asked that question so many times over the years. And, um, you know, every time I think about it, I always say, you know, I, I knew I wanted to help people. Um, I didn't know exactly in what capacity I wanted to do that. Um, I, I grew up in Immokalee. I didn't mention that earlier, but I grew up in Immokalee and, um, you know, I don't, if you've ever been to Immokalee, there's it's a it's a small town you know basically everyone falls into the the low income poverty guidelines and so um you know i just i knew i wanted to give back to my community um and ever since high school i just loved helping people and um there was one specific incident where um you know, and I won't give any names or, or too many details, but I had a classmate go through a very serious um, accident, and um, basically their entire family passed away except for that person. And um, I remember having a class with that 
student and never actually being their friend. And I remember just feeling so guilty. And, and I, I don't share that story with very many people, um, but I wanted to share it tonight because, um, you know, I think a lot of times some of us have that guilt where, um, especially if we go into the mental health field, we come in um, believing that we're going to change the world and we're going to reach everyone and we're going to save everyone. Um, and you quickly find out that that's, you can't do that. Um, but even if I just help one person, you know, that that's enough for me. Um, so uh, that was kind of where it started. Like I knew I wanted to help people. Um, and then I always laugh because when I went into college, I changed my major like five or six times. Um, so I was very indecisive. I didn't really know. And then um, I, you know, basically just after talking to academic advisors, I, I decided that um Social work was the route I wanted to go. Um, you know, just looking at the curriculum, it seemed like something that I resonated with. And, you know, the rest is history. I went on to get my bachelor's degree and master's degree in social work um, and then uh, became a licensed mental health provider. Um, and I've been licensed since 2017. So here we are. That's awesome. Um, I, I kind of feel that in a sense of when I hear stuff, like when I hear people talk, I, I love talking to people, hearing people's stories. But when I hear their story, um, like the empathetic side of me always wants to like, you know, feel what you feel. And, and I kind of can in a sense of like that one person. Um, I got someone near and dear to my heart that still struggles with addiction. And man, I, that pushes me to want to help. I mean, everything I do, like I always, obviously, I want to help anyone I can. Uh, I, the one person thing—that—that's like the goal of this whole podcast. You know, if one person hears and is helping, I feel like it's a success. But underlying all that, I always want this person that's near and dear to my heart to hear. You know, like I always, everything I do, like I kind of want to aim it at them you know what I mean like it's all mm-hmm. underlying it's it's for that person you know but it kind of mm-hmm. sucks that sometimes you, you're too close to a situation to be able to help um right but that's that's awesome and then you know you can think about all the other people that you're helping along the way so I think that's awesome that you've been and let me add that I did listen to your story before we came on tonight and I just want to um say that you are such an inspiration you know the the stuff that you share um in your story and um you definitely were were vulnerable and opened up about a lot of experiences that you had and and that takes um a significant amount of courage and vulnerability so you know thank you for sharing your story Thank you for that. Uh, I, a lot of that, it was actually my first time sharing it to more than one person that wasn't a close friend or confidant or a therapist, you know, and honestly, it was kind of liberating. Um, I just, my main goal is, is to help, you know, because I feel like there's a stigma around addiction and you being oh, in the mental yeah. health field, I'm sure, like, up until recently, if you asked your employer for a mental health day, they would have looked at you crazy, you know? So I feel like <laughs> y'all have, and when I say y'all, I mean, I should say the mental health field, like 
y'all have started to break that stigma in the sense that people now realize that, hey, pe- mental health is real, you know, like. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, and it's I think, so unfortunately, it's, it's had to take a lot of very tragic and, and unfortunate events to happen throughout the country and the world for people to start opening their eyes and understanding that, that mental health is very real and it does impact, uh, you know, individuals, families, entire communities. So, you know, it's, we've, we've come a long way. There's still a lot more work that needs to be done, but, but we've definitely, you know, um, have made, made some gains for sure. Yeah, for real. Um, I just, I know that, Breaking the stigma of, you know, of they're just sad. Why don't you just be happy? Why don't you just stop being anxious? Like, when or it's people, all in your head. Yeah. yeah. When people get past that, then y'all, we can really start to work on the issues underneath. So I want, I want to do that with addiction. I want people to say, you know, I don't want them to say, you know, they just, it's a lack of discipline. It's morals. It's a choice. You know, they choose to do that. Um, mm-hmm. so. I think that once we can break through that barrier, I mean, that's a part of it, obviously. Just like you said, that breaking the stigma has allowed you all to come a, li- a, a little bit further than you were. Not as far as you want to go, but, I mean, strides compared to what you were doing before. Um, when did you first make the connection? of, uh, Or was it seeing kids, you said, that had co-occurring disorders or between mental health yeah. and addiction? Um. I think it kind of all started, so probably about year, um, I want to say maybe like year three or four into uh, being a, like I had already graduated from college with my master's degree, um, and so to continue on, um, you, part of, you know, the next step to being a provider is um, you have to be licensed um, or be supervised. To, to eventually become licensed. And so um, when you are being supervised, you have to get a certain number of hours to be able to become considered like a licensed provider in whatever state that you're in. So um, I took a job at a mental community mental health agency in Collier County. And um, it was a program that, had the reputation of taking on the neediest uh, teenagers in the county. And so um, that's really where I started to see that, you know, these these kids are coming into this program with the reputation that they're the highest risk kids and um, a, a good number of them um, were self-medicating. And so um, that's kind of where where I started to see, like, okay, this isn't just about mental health. You know, there's there's a lot of substance, not only uh, experimentation, but then, you know, you get those ones that experiment and move on into the the part of, you know, where they become dependent on that substance. Um, so I really started, that's really when I worked for that that community mental health agency, that's really where I started to kind of see it um, and knew like, okay, I need to start stepping up my game because 
Um, you know, I want to be able, in order to be able to treat these kids, I have to know what I'm working with, how to deal with it, um, how to how to address it, and and help them break those those barriers. So that's really when it it, it kind of came to the forefront for me. That's awesome to learn. Um, I'm also, uh, I don't know if you know this or not, but I'm part of a uh, organization called Rise Above, where we try to help Native youth. Uh, specifically, mm-hmm. but we have all youth. Um, some of the, what you're describing, uh, as far as where you were and the high risk stuff, that's like every reservation around the country. Um, mm-hmm. like you are, you have the generational trauma, you have broken homes, you have moms and dads drinking and doing drugs. Not only that, but in front of the kids, sometimes, sometimes the first experience of a child is getting high or drunk with their mom or with their dad or with an older family member, and it's just normalized. Um, and there's a stat that said that uh, the pre, uh, pre-genetically disposed kids that have a, either an alcoholic or a drug-using parent are 40 times more likely to become addicted than a kid who doesn't. And where I'm from, you know, the kid who doesn't is the anomaly. So... And right. we also, we try to get the early intervention because um, I read a stat that said um, if you can, if a, if a person doesn't try drugs uh, or if they're not addicted to drugs by the time they're 25, then they're like so much less likely to become an addict. And so mm. it's, it's really important, I feel like, the, the work that you do. So I'm I'm just... I'm like a sponge right now, CC. Um, <laughs> well, you, I appreciate that. And go ahead. Would you say that addiction is a symptom of mental health in some cases? Um, I would. I think so. I think it can be a symptom because it kind of ties back to what we were talking about. Um, you know, that Band-Aid. I, I really like that analogy um, because, like, we talk about self-medicating and, um, you know, a lot of our kiddos who are struggling with these mental health issues might not fully understand that what they're dealing with is a mental health issue. So, um, you know, they turn to substances to try to cope with whatever it is that they're facing, um, you know, and then that's when we get into the dependency issues. Um, So I don't believe that uh, when somebody turns to substances, they they fully understand how... um, how significant that substance can impair their life. I don't think anybody goes in knowing that what they're about to do is going to turn their entire world upside down. Um, I think that some people are truly just trying to um, get through whatever incident or trauma or experience that they're facing at that time. And, and I think a lot of us think like, oh, I'm stronger than that. You know, I, I can do this one time and be able to, to not touch the stuff ever again. Um, and, and that's not always the case, unfortunately. Yeah. The, uh, one time ain't going to hurt you. You know, it's just once, just try, you know, um, it's really a, 
when you talk about that, like I had this thought that it's really a, a double-edged sword too, I feel like, because say I'm, I have something going on with me, uh, or it's pain or trauma or a problem or, and I self-medicate and it don't go away. Obviously. Um, I think it does, but I just numb the pain or I just escape my reality for that moment. But as soon as the drug or alcohol or whatever wears off, then whatever I was running from comes back like boom, like harder than it did before. So now mm-hmm. I want to use more drugs to escape this because it seems worse than last time. And then every time it's like that, every time you come down, every time you sober up, this issue that you're running from is like, boom, right in your face. Like it never went away. And that that's a vicious cycle to get caught up in is to, you know, I thought this problem went away and really it didn't. All it did was, you know, it got bigger. It feels like because I didn't do anything about it. Um, so that's, that's really, that's right. great to hear. I mean, not great to hear, obviously, but great to understand. Yeah. Well, I think it ties back to, like, when you shared your story, like, you talked about the instant gratification um, that uh, people who are using get from, you know, their next high. They uh, no longer have to worry about that problem in that moment, but you know, as soon as they come down, okay, now it's back to reality. And now, um, so instead of getting to the root of the problem, I'm just going to go and use, you know, use my drug of choice again. Um, and so, you know, that's, that's when that cycle continues. And yeah, it it is, um, I am not in recovery, but I can only imagine how difficult it is to get out of a situation like that, because I've been in other instances, you know, uh, relationship issues or other, um, you know, vicious cycles that it is so difficult to come out of. Um, not impossible, but, but extremely difficult. Yeah. It's, it's unfamiliar. You know, um, I know sometimes people are like, man, why I've seen people myself included stop using drugs, um, stop drinking, but like you say, not doing any work on the wound underneath the Band-Aid. And then within a couple of weeks or a couple of months, uh, you know, it wasn't never in like no set specific time period, but it was always inevitable that I was going to go back because I hadn't really done any internal work on what I was trying to escape in the first place. And yeah. I had a um, a colleague one time share a, a very um, interesting analogy with, with the rest of our team. And um, I really, I, it stuck with me. Um, and um, it was essentially, you know, we were trying to figure out how do we, how do we work with this student? We were really struggling with this student and, and the interventions that we had tried just didn't seem to work. And so, you know, uh, she approached it as think of, think of this person as, um, a cup. You know, they're coming to school with their bucket or their cup already full to the rim, um, dealing with all these issues, past trauma, history of self harm, uh, 
you know, anything that you can think of, like uh, family issues. And the second something happens that just it doesn't go their way, you know, a teacher talks to them wrong or, you know, they get into it with a friend. And that kind of just like overfills their cup. You know, so now they are lashing out at, you know, what we look at as, well, you know, your teacher just asked you to uh, take your hoodie off. And now you're having this totally irrational response to an adult who who just asked you, uh, who gave you a simple request. Um, But when we take a step back and we look at, that was not, that's not the root of it. The root of it is not because an adult asked this child to, you know, do something simple. The root of it is, is that they're coming to school already with their cup basically overflowing. And, um, you know, I think a lot of us as adults or whatever, you know, we, we, uh, deal with life with our cup already so full that one little thing kind of just pushes us over the edge and we go back to what we've always, what we've always known, you know, whether it be substances, whether it be, um, any, any other vice that, um, you know, is unhealthy essentially. Um, so, you know, I think it's learning how to, you know, lower what is in our cup, you know, so that, we're not any little thing isn't pushing us over the edge. Yeah. You gotta be okay being uncomfortable sometimes. Um, yeah, for sure. That that's awesome. Uh, I've never heard that analogy about the cup. I mean, I've heard a lot of analogies about cups. You can't pour from an empty cup, all this and all that. But what, what comes to mind when you said that was like, the the hoodie incident is like the proverbial feather that broke the camel's back. It wasn't absolutely, that. yeah. It, so that's that's good. Um, yeah, and I think when we're working with whether we're we're working with um, people in recovery or we're working with students or we're working with children or adults in mental health, like we have to remember, like it's not it's not about this one moment, like. This is a person who has been dealing with a lifetime of, of uh, trauma or um, just, you know, negative experiences. Um, and so, you know, we're dealing with that person in that one moment. But to them, like, it's so many other things, so many layers, um, you know, that we have to have to keep in mind. Yeah, it's... Uh a lot of issues and uh the the that what you said is uh it made me think that of this time someone told me that the reason that they self sabotaged was because if they self sabotaged they knew what was gonna happen and it gave them like a, a sense of control, if only a little bit, by knowing mm-hmm. that if I do this, although my life will be chaos Chaos is familiar to me, even if it isn't healthy. And that, that's, that's a cycle in itself. You know, um, sometimes we, me coming out of recovery, like, it, it's, it's crazy for me to say this, 
at this time. But, you know, once I, once I quit doing the drunks, once I quit drinking, you know, that, that was almost like the easy part, you know, uh, then I had to work on, like you said, it's like emptying my cup of all these issues. Now it was really oh. tough because that required me to take a look at the own role that I played in my trauma, in my pain, in my problems, you know? So that was, um, that leads me to my next question. Uh, What's the first step when you see a co-occurring disorder like that? You see somebody self-medicating because of a mental health issue. What What's the first thing that you would that you would do for that person, or have them do, or ask them to do? Um, I would probably um, after you know getting to know them and just, you know because that's really the first part of of any therapeutic relationship is building that trust and, you know, uh, building that rapport, getting your, your, your client to trust you and, and feel comfortable with you. So after that's done, I would probably help them explore like the onset, like when was the first time, what led you to that? What, what was the trigger? Like, what was the incident? that pushed you to to that substance the very first time. And then kind of just explore it from there because um, at that point, it's not really about, in my opinion, and, you know, there might be other professionals that disagree, but um, at that point, it's not so much about the substance use. It, it kind of goes back to what we've been talking about this entire time is, is, what, is what is the root of that? Like we can, we can, uh, sugarcoat it and make it look, you know, nice and pretty all day long. But if we're not going to, um, get down to the, the ugly truth of it, you know, you're never going to be truly healed. Um, and you know, true healing comes from within and, you know, like you have to be able to be raw and vulnerable um, and that's, that's scary for people. That's really scary for people. They, they worry about being judged. They worry about being talked about, you know, they worry about, um, crying. Like I've had so many people over the years tell me that they don't cry. They don't cry in front of people. They don't want to cry. They don't like crying. And I'm just over here like, well, I cry every day. I can watch a commercial and cry. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's really hard to to um, get people who have had to put on this tough exterior for so many years to um, become uncomfortable. But, you know, it, it's the hard work that needs to get done, you know, if they want true healing and, and to be free of that of that um mental health disorder or that substance use disorder um i think that that's that's that makes a lot of sense to me uh what i wanted to add to that was it is hard to be vulnerable um not only that but like in my community um I've been talking a lot about this to, to people from my res and different reservations. And I say like the stoic Indian stereotype, like 
is really a, a thing, I feel like, where, you know, as a Native American man on my res, like I was supposed to be strong. I wasn't supposed to show emotion. Uh, we didn't talk about our feelings. We just dealt with it internally. And I think that goes back to the, the stigma of mental health. You know, you don't now, now it would be more acceptable for someone to say, well, the reason that I did this in the first place was because I felt like this, you know, but I'd say even, what would you say, even two or three years ago, like people would still be like, oh, mental health, like you go from doing drugs and not being able to control yourself to saying it's all in your head, you know, like you go from one stigma to the other. So that kind of probably mm -hmm. deterred a lot of people also. And just the fact of, um, I don't know, that's just, that's, that's the tough part. It's like showing your, yeah. your neck to somebody, showing, showing them your belly whenever you're vulnerable and you're, you allow yourself to be weak in front of them, you know, there's, there's fear of, you know, what, what are they going to think? What are they going to say? Who are they going to tell? What are them other people going to say? But I think at the end of the day, like people are invested if they really care about you, but I don't think other people like really care that much, you know, like they might hear what you're saying, like have a thought, like, but they're not going to like dwell on it and go like, Oh, did you hear what CC said? Like, she's crazy. You know what I mean? Um, mm. so I, I just, I just wanted to say that, that a lot of what you're saying, like it's stuff that like I've been dealing with when I say dealing with, I mean, like I have, I'm a peer support specialist. I do want to be a, a CDAC eventually mm -hmm. and i also i've been looking into that so when you were talking about the supervised hours i was i wanted to be like i know they want two thousand to be a cda <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's a lot but you can do it you definitely can um and you know i really think that when you talk about the cultural aspect of it like that that hits the nail on the head for sure because um you know you talk about like the native american aspect but you know, it's the same thing in all cultures. Like, uh, I'm, I come from a Hispanic background. Same thing with Hispanics. You know, Latino men, like, you, you know, that's not something that you hear about every day. Like, the man is supposed to get up, go to work, take care of the family. You know, boys don't cry. And if you do cry, you know, you better suck it up. And, you know, it's just, it's, you know, culturally like you don't talk about your feelings you don't you don't show your feelings and and I think that that plays a big part in why like a lot of relationships don't work out nowadays why so many people are turning to substances um, because you know we we feel like we've been taught to believe that we have to deal with things on our own um, and, and that is not the case. Uh, and that's what, that's the stigma that we're trying to break. Like, you're not alone. Um, you can ask for help. You can be, be vulnerable, um, and, and get help. You know, this, this doesn't have to, like, it doesn't have to be this way. Um, and that actually, like, when you were talking about culturally, um, you know, that the man does these certain things or you don't talk about certain things. There's a, a mental health training that um, I laugh because I, I tell my coworkers like, oh my gosh, I have to go do another training. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, I love talking about mental health and, and um, 
So one of the statistics in this training, and it's probably dated now, um, because, you know, it's, it's over like 10 years old, but it was still a pretty, um, to see it on the screen is it, just crazy to me. So, you know, the statistic is we're talking about, um, depression, right? So we're talking about depression and, you know, how many, um, adolescents between the ages of like 13 to 18 experience a depressive episode. And so the stat is that 17%, uh, you know, in whatever given year, um, of females experience uh, a major depressive episode versus males only reported, 5% of males reported experiencing a major depressive episode. And so every time that statistic comes up in the training, I'm like, you know, I, I kind of use that as an opportunity to hear from the group. And I'm like, do y'all really think like females are much more um, emotional or likely to be depressed? Like that's a big gap. 17% compared to 5% is a big gap, you know, and we're looking at the same ages. The only difference is, is that it's female versus male. And, you know, these groups, whether it's teachers, um, you know, teacher aides or, you know, everyone in the district has to do this training. And so these are people that don't have any mental health experience, you know, their, their, their work is education. That's what they know. Um, and so, but it always comes back to what society has always told us, you know, boys don't cry, boys should not be emotional, boys, you know, should just suck it up. And I truly believe that that's where that kind of like that disparity in numbers comes from is because boys don't feel that they can be honest when these numbers are being gathered because society from forever has told them that they need to basically just hide their feelings um you know and so i think yes culture plays a part in it um but you know it's also like society as a whole you know we need to let our boys know that it's okay to cry it's okay to talk about these things it's okay to process these feelings um and with the hopes of that they don't turn to substances or any other vice that can potentially harm them. Yeah, let them know it's okay to not feel okay sometimes. And it's okay to say yes, that. Yes, I love that saying. <laughs> I love that <laughs> saying because it's, it's so true. I was talking to a friend who's also in recovery. Um, his name's Alex. He'll be on a podcast in a few weeks. But we were talking about how when we were first in early recovery about how there's all these cliches, you know, just like, you know, it's okay to not be okay. You know, like there's yeah. cliches for almost every situation. And yeah. at the time I was like, man, that's the dumbest stuff I've ever heard. But now so many times, like as, as I'm healing and continue to heal, I'm like, man, that makes so much sense. Like that's so simple, you know, like, why didn't nobody tell me? And then I'm like, bingo, they did tell me. I just didn't listen. I didn't want to listen. I wasn't yeah. able to listen. Um, yeah, you weren't ready. Do you think, I got a question also, do you think that you have to be vulnerable in order to heal or start healing? 
Um, eventually, yes. Like, a lot of people have this misconception that therapy is, um, you know, you go to this place, you go talk to this person, and they're going to just tell you what to do. They're going to give you the answers to all of your questions. And that is not the case. You know, us as a therapist, like, we're just there to guide you. We're there to help you explore these thoughts and these feelings, maybe make you see certain things in a a different perspective, you know, through a different lens. Um, But at the end of the day, after all the cliches and all the conversations, um, you do. You do have to be, you have to be able to be honest with yourself. Like, you have to, um, even if you don't want to say certain things out loud, you have to be able to admit certain things to yourself in order to find that true healing and not, like you said, put a bandaid over it. Um, you know, I, um, I a lot of times use the analogy of the soda can with my kids that I work with, you know, and, you know, and I always ask them, like, what happens when you shake a soda can? And they always tell me, oh, it it explodes. And I'm like, yes, that's exactly what is going to happen to you if we don't work through these things. And so, you know, whether you're a child, adolescent, young adult, older adult, it doesn't matter. You have to be able to be true to you, you know, true to you. And, And that's where that healing comes from. So, yeah, I definitely think, you know, you need to vulnerability is, is where it's at for sure. Yeah, that's uh, what came to mind and what I told my therapist, I feel like he was, it was like, I feel like you're like an unbiased sounding board. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, it's like uh, one step past the internal dialogue because I can tell you stuff and you can tell me without, you know, you're not so close to me. Like, cause when you try to talk to someone close to you, I feel like there's a, there's a factor in there of like, I don't really want to tell you the truth because I don't want to hurt your feelings. And I don't feel like you're in a place where I can hurt your feelings at this moment, even though I'm not trying to. So to have someone there that don't really have that connection, that's not really like thinking about, Oh, well, they don't know all the stuff, you know, that say your brother does, your sister does, your partner does. So they can really give you like what it looks like from the outside looking in, which is sometimes, you know, you're like I was saying earlier, sometimes you're too close to a situation. It's Mm -hmm. like, uh, for me, it's like looking at a picture, but with your nose on it, you know, you don't really see the whole picture as far as somebody else who is say standing 10 feet behind you. They could say, Oh, you're looking at this, you know, and you don't know it because you're so close to it. Whereas if you would just take a step back and that's what, I think that's what, uh, therapists help what they help me do is take that step back and look at the broader picture and not just the now and not only that but look at it through the scope of or through the lens of you know not a lot of times people get stuck looking at the world the whole world through one lens from one situation that happened in their life you know they might be looking at the entire world with a pain lens you know or the entire world with a I don't trust them lens, you know, and that kind of gets everything skewed. So I, I really like the lens analogy. I, uh, the first time I heard it was actually somebody uh, said the rose colored uh, glasses. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I like that one too. 
Well, and it, um, you know, something that like, you know, when we, when we connected about uh, me coming on here and, and talking about mental health, you know, I, I, like a million and one things went through my head, like, oh, I want to talk about this. I want to talk about that. And, um, but one thing I definitely wanted to touch on um, was trauma and how trauma basically rewires our entire body, changes who we are as a person, um, and that is going to impact every single thing after, you know. It, we are going to approach that experience or that um, incident with that trauma lens if we don't work through it. Um, and, you know, trauma is such a significant, significant um, risk factor that, um, you know, just increases the, the likelihood of so many things, mental health, substance abuse, uh, self-harm, you know, um, it, trauma plays such a significant role in everything. Like it, it just impacts the body, it impacts the mind. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not something that should be taken lightly, for sure. I also would like to add to that. I think um, when dealing with trauma, like an important thing to remember is that your trauma is not my trauma. So mm-hmm. I can't compare mine to yours. You know what I mean? I, I feel like a lot of people, even I've heard people, I mean, they're not mental health professionals, obviously, but just, just people, I mean, they have the best intentions, you know, but I've heard this comment a lot and, you know, it, it really stuck out to me because it's like, although they mean well, it's like one of the most disrespectful things I feel like you could say to somebody whenever, say, person A says to person B, you know, well, um, I grew up without my father or I grew up without my mother. And then person B, instead of saying, you know, that, that I'm sorry you had to go through that. What does it make you feel like? Let's talk about that. They say, well, some people don't have any parents. Suck it up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that not only does that like dismiss their feelings, they also probably, that might be the catalyst for them to never speak about it ever again, at least not to another person. You know, so I just wanted to add that, like, everybody's trauma is different. Everybody's trauma is not going to look like yours. Everybody's trauma is not going to be devastating, you know what I mean? Like, how are you still standing? You know, some people's lives, and they're blessed to have that life, you know, they grow up with both parents. Their their worst problem might be, you know, I got a bad grade. I got an F. I've been an A honor roll student my whole life. And we don't need to dis- dismiss that just because it's not as bad we don't perceive it to be as bad as our trauma, you know? Or like, you know, two people can go through the exact same thing and one person can leave that experience traumatized and the other one can be totally okay, can be resilient and bounce back. Um, You know, so trauma's not the same for everyone, you know, and, and not everybody responds the same way some people can be traumatized and never turn to substances and other people do so you know it's just everybody is different every case every situation like there is no cookie cutter uh approach to a certain case you know every case is different 
everybody is different. Everybody's trauma is different. And, you know, I think if we can think about that, like, you know, we're just, we're helping, um, you know, the people that, that we will eventually get into touch with, um, you know, whether it's future clients, future mentees, future whatever, um, if we, as long as we can have that mentality of this situation is its own situation, like I cannot use the same approach that I did with, you know, Susie, I can't use that same approach with Johnny, you know, they're, they're two totally different situations and, and I need to treat it as such. Yeah, I, uh, that's crazy that you say that because as you were talking, I was wanting to say when I when I was talking in that I would like to rescind my earlier question about uh, what's the first step between you know when you've seen the co occurring disorder like what's the first steps you take because there isn't a cookie cutter approach so I mean I don't know if you could give me an answer to that that would pertain to everybody you probably couldn't. And so I just wanted to say my bad for that question. I wasn't even thinking. I just, uh, I really like to, I really like, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, I think, um, you know, eventually we, you know, would lead to the same, the same um, exploration of exploring that, you know, that first time. Um, but how you get there, the journey, you know, the, the journey that that person went on to, to come to that, that, um, you know, realization or revelation is, is going to be different for everyone. Yeah. So I agree. And, uh, speaking of cookie cutters, I, I was reason I love to hear about anything anything recovery wise, anything mental health wise, anything trauma, cause all that's connected. And I think the more knowledge that you can have, then the, the better solutions you can come up with, you know, uh, I work construction. So the way that I think about it is, you know, if I'm at home Depot and I get all these tools, like I go in there and like, I don't just get this tool for this job. You know, I can see that there's this way to do this. I'm trying to put all these tools, as many tools as I can in my toolbox. So when I get to the job site, quotation marks, it don't matter what it is. I should be able to have something in my truck to help me tackle the problem, you know? So being able to learn all this stuff is, is, is really a blessing. And I thank you for that. Um, you mentioned, I can't remember the initials you were talking about. You wanted to talk about, uh, EDMR. Yes. E E M D R. Um, so uh, when I talk about EMDR, I get really excited. <laughs> I love EMDR. Um, and so what EMDR stands for is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Um, they're really fancy words and that's why we just say EMDR. Um, and what it basically is, um, it's a specialized trauma for, uh, people who have experienced or a specialized therapy for people who have experienced trauma. So it's a, it's a trauma approach. Um, I've used it with, um, you know, many different clients and, um, the majority of it, it just, it has such a good, um, success rate, like helping people re reprocess certain things. Um, 
And um, so I'll, you know, is there like a specific question or how do you, what do you, what would you like for me to say about it? I have never even heard of it, Cece. So uh, <laughs> enlighten me. I would say enlighten me. Um, okay. How does it work? So once a person has identified like, okay, you know, I have this, this trauma um, and, you know, I would like to be able to learn how to move past it. Um, what it basically is, is um, you are essentially using your brain to reprocess certain memories. So when you're working with an EMDR therapist, you have to be able to recall a certain memory or a certain uh, experience or emotion to be able to reprocess that. So um, if the therapist deems you as like an appropriate client to use this approach, um, you know, it, it doesn't, it's not recommended for everybody. Like um, people who are psychotic, um, you know, who are experiencing like delusions or hallucinations, you know, losing touch with reality. That's not, that would not be an ideal candidate for EMDR. Um, people who have like medical disorders, um, like epilepsy, um, because there is a, um, a piece of equipment that may be able to trigger a seizure, things like that. So that's another example of a person who would not be a good candidate. But let's say, you know, your therapist is an EMDR therapist and believes that you would be a good candidate to to uh, use EMDR. Um, what you guys would do is uh, once you um, are have been prepped in the process, you know, like your, your therapist would take you through the entire process and explain that to you, then you would work together with your therapist to identify a specific moment or um, experience that causes you to feel nervous, anxious, um, you know, causes you to stay awake at night, um, you know, maybe even uh, for people who um, are struggling with addiction, pushes them to, uh, for their next high. Um, you know, you would, you would pick a, a, a specific experience. Um, and you would use the specialized equipment that your therapist has for you to reprocess that. Um, so you essentially um, think about the memory. You know, you pick a moment in that experience of when you felt the worst. Um, and then um, your therapist would begin um, the bilateral stimulation. And what that is, um, is um, the therapist has several pieces of equipment. So one of the pieces of equipment that we use is a light bar. And it's basically a uh, 12, um, well, I don't even know, I guess, no, like a three-foot bar um, that's on a tripod that has lights on it. And once your therapist starts it, the lights travel from one end to the other. And you use your eyes to follow the light while you're thinking about that memory and basically taking yourself through that memory all over again, but because you have this specialized equipment, your brain is able to reprocess like a significant amount of information to help your body know like, okay, I've gone through this experience. 
um, it's over now, I'm okay, I don't have to, you know, feel anxious when I think about that anymore, I don't have to feel uh, scared when I get that flashback, um, I can sleep comfortably at night because now I've reprocessed this experience. Um, and it is, in addition to the light bar, there's also uh, what we call tactile, um, tactile um handheld devices it's basically just like these little handheld um buzzy things they vibrate between your left hand and your right hand and then there's also um ear pieces that have noises that travel between the left ear and the right ear and the reason we're doing the whole um transitioning from the left side of the body to the right side of the body is because that is what is helping the brain reprocess that very traumatic or scary or uncomfortable experience. Um, so I know that's a lot of information <laughs> and I'm trying to break it down and, you know, cause I want, I do want your, your listeners to know that this is, this is a, a therapy that's out there and, you know, is so like just, so I don't even know what the word is like it's just such a good such a good um effective approach um you know so that's good um <laughs> it's like it's really that. interesting yeah I mean there's uh there's way more than one way to tackle a problem though I feel like and you know like yeah. we were saying earlier the cookie cutter thing everybody's journey is different before the event and after, you know, everybody's recovery looks different, uh, whether that be from addiction or mental health. So being able to have multiple options to help treat someone is, is amazing. Um, and I think that yeah. once this gets more, uh, is it something that just recently started or came about or has it been just not a lot of people know um, about it started, I want to say, back in the 70s, and so there wasn't, like, a ton of research on it, and then, like, over the years, there have there have been, you know, like, a lot of people would call it, like, junk science or whatever, um, but there, there has been research behind it. It is an evidence-based practice now to where there's research to show that it is an effective approach, um, and, you know, I, I laugh because there's um, you know, every now and again, I'll see like a celebrity, a celebrity come on, you know, whether it's social media or TV or whatever, and they, they share that they've used EMDR. Um, so I think that's pretty cool too, to know that even, you know, celebrities use this approach. Um, and it's not, it's not good for everybody. It's not, it's not an approach for everybody. You definitely have to be ready to be vulnerable, you have to be ready to be uncomfortable because you're basically reliving that experience in your mind. Um, your therapist will stop you every, you know, 15, 20 seconds and, and say, okay, tell me what you're noticing. And you tell your therapist that the picture that's in your mind in that moment, because as you begin the stimulation, like you'll find that your mind just goes to different places, you know, you start to, um, you know, wander and that's 
that's what you're supposed to do. You're so, because your body knows what it needs. Your brain knows what it needs to reprocess certain experiences. Um, and, you know, so, but at the end of it all, like, you're basically having to relive that, that moment. And um, it's it's uncomfortable. People cry. People, you know, get very, very emotional. Um, and that's why it's up to your therapist to know when you're ready. Like, you have to make sure that you are ready to be um, raw and uncomfortable because you're about to relive those things. But because you're doing the bilateral simulation, now you're, you're, that experience goes from one part of the brain to the other, and it's able to, to kind of uh, become less emotionally charged. You know, I tell my kids, because I do it with, with um, the kids on my caseload at, in the school district, I tell them, like, this isn't a magic machine. You're not gonna, we're not gonna go back in time, um, and, and like, you're gonna forget that it happened. No, you're still gonna remember that this really crappy experience happened to you. You're just not gonna feel so emotionally connected to it anymore. Um, you know, so that that's kind of how I explain it to the kids. And you know, I've had like people tell me like, Miss Cece, I don't know what you did to me, but I slept so much better last night. I'm like, I didn't do anything to you. That was all you. <laughs> that was all you. You did the hard work. I was just there to make sure that you were okay. Um, so, you know, like I've, I, I have a lot of faith in, in EMDR. I really enjoy it. That's awesome. Um, when you said, uh, make sure they're ready, what came to mind for me was a lot of people, they don't even, um, they can't even admit to themselves or they, that they did go through a traumatic experience or, they don't want to, or they don't want to like process that. So they run from that. You know, that might be the escape that they're seeking when they self-medicate. So it's yeah. it's one thing to get them to admit that to themselves. But then uh, the part, what I was thinking when you said, make sure they're ready is that it's, it's one level to admit that, you know, yes, this traumatic thing happened to me. Yes, it has affected me. But now I have to make the decision consciously that, yeah, I want to go through it again. You know what I mean? Yep. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. And my mentor, when I was getting trained on it, because when I was getting trained on it, I had to do it myself. I had to pick my traumatic experience to reprocess. And um, my mentor at the time, um, he told me that, um, he said, it is a um, momentary discomfort for long-term relief. So you have to be able to be uncomfortable in that moment, but understand that after that session, after that, that reprocessing, you're going to experience long-term relief when you think about that, that, that experience. Um, you're going to feel less anxious. You're going to feel less depressed. You're, you know, those flashbacks are not going to be, um, as debilitating anymore. You're going to be able to sleep better. You're not going to have those nightmares anymore. You know, and it, it, it varies with everybody. Some people just need one or two sessions. Some people need three, four, five, six sessions because, you know, you're, you can only reprocess one traumatic incident at a time. Um, you know, so that, that makes very interesting a lot of what the body can do. 
um, what came to mind for that is, is for me, fitness is a big part of my recovery, you know, but it sounds like a hard workout, you know, it's uncomfortable in the moment, but in the long run, it's good for you. As soon as you get done with it, you know, like the minute you're done, like you feel relief, you feel better than you did before you did it. And, mm-hmm. um, I think that that's very interesting because you were talking about how going from left to right, the bilateral movement. And, uh, in my research and what I've learned, you know, the, I'm no scientist by no means, but I do know that the right brain, the right side of the brain and the left side of the brain control different parts and functions of not only how your mind works, but how your body physically moves, you know? So, Mm -hmm. so when you're processing that, like it, it, it's got to process differently than it did when it was just on one side of the brain. It has to because they work differently, you know? So that makes a lot of sense for you to go from left to right, up and down, you know, um, because it's going to make that process or the, the event that you're trying to process bounce between your whole brain and not just one side or even, or even one specific section like the, you know, hippocampus or what, I don't know if that's the correct term, but uh, you know, just a little. Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely correct. Like you're absolutely correct. And that's basically the goal of the bilateral stimulation is to connect both sides of the brain um, and I was going to ask you, have you ever heard of the REM cycle when we're sleeping, like rapid eye movement cycle? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm so not that's what, Go ahead. Yeah. Well, neither am I, but from what, you know, the information that I do know is basically EMDR is mimicking that rapid eye movement cycle. So when we're sleeping and we're, you know, in our, our deep sleep and we, we start to dream, we don't know because we're asleep, but our eyes are moving. You know, I don't know if you've ever seen like uh, when people are dreaming, but their eyes are kind of fluttering. And that's because, yes, we're, our, we are asleep, but our brains are still working. And, and when we're dreaming, our our eyes are are fluttering back and forth and that's essentially what EMDR is doing it's mimicking that that rapid eye movement cycle and that's actually why um one of the side effects of EMDR is um you know shortly after uh, a reprocessing session people have um noticed that they have an increase in their dreams they will feel like whether it's the night of or the night after, you know, they will experience more vivid like dreams. And, you know, um, and I can, I can attest to that because I experienced that when, when I did my training, I, you know, had a very vivid like dream of the experience that I reprocessed. But this time in my dream, I was able to stand up to the person that hurt me and let them know like, I didn't like it when you did this. And in my dream, it worked out in a much more positive way where I was able to advocate for myself. Um, you know, so it's very interesting what the brain can do. And, and, you know, I wish I knew, I knew everything about the brain because it's just, it's, it can do so much. Um, but yeah, EMDR is such a fantastic approach for people who are, who have experienced something traumatic and who, um, you know, the way I think of it is if you are turning to a substance or any other vice 
um, that can be harmful to you because of this traumatic experience. Like you want to use it to dull the flashbacks or to help you feel less anxious. Like give EMDR a try. Give it a shot and see if that will help you not feel so anxious, so depressed, so, you know, um, worried about experiencing a flashback. Um, and, you know, maybe you won't need that, that substance or that vice anymore. Yeah, uh, I agree. I think there's so many things, I mean, that you should try. And as, as the science behind how our brain works and the relation between external factors and internal factors influencing our decision-making and the way that we think, feel, and act, there are going to be more. I think in the future, more therapies or more things that come about. And I think that we just need to run with it. I mean, mm-hmm. tools in the toolbox. So we need to have as many as we oh, can. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm here for it. I want it all. I want all the tools because, you know, what works for one person is might not work for another person. So I need to make sure that I have, I have something else that I can use. Yeah, even going back to the to the one person, you know, like, even if I learn something that can only help one person, I still need to know that. You know what I mean? Yes. Because for for me, uh, the the I'm going to remember the one person I wasn't able to help more than a thousand that I did. You know, so that mm-hmm. that. Have you ever heard the the, um, the starfish story? No, I don't think. I know there's a lot of stories that like they're similar, but they have different characters or different names. But I'm I'm enlighten me, Cece. <laughs> so it's basically just like a short little, you know, like uh, one of those like quotes on the wall or whatever. Um, but it is so just empowering to me for those of us who work in the human services field, whether, you know, it's you, me, anyone else that we're, we're trying to reach others. So it's basically, you know, um, this little boy and he's walking along the beach and he walks upon this, um, like basically field of starfish, you know, all these starfish have washed upon the shore and, um, you know, he's going one by one, throwing in all these starfish back into the ocean so that they won't die. And somebody walks up to him and, and, you know, they're like, why are you wasting your time? You know, and I'm just paraphrasing because I, I can't, I don't know it word for word, but basically they ask him like, why are you wasting your time throwing in these starfish? Like they're just going to die. Um, and you know, you're not, you're not making a difference. There's too many on the beach for you to, to help, you know, and, and, he bends down, picks up a starfish and throws it back in the ocean. And he's like, well, I helped that one. I made a difference to that one. Um, you know, so basically, you know, what, what that, what that tells me is no, we might not be able to, to reach the entire beach and, you know, throw in all the thousands of, of starfish that have washed upon the shore, but, um, we can, reach that one and it'll make a difference to that one and that that's kind of what 
what keeps me going. And, you know, um, I've had people reach out to me years, years later, you know, because you never really know what seeds you plant. Um, uh, and, you know, tell me like, Miss Cece, you know, it, it, when you help me with this, like, you know, you really helped me get through a lot and a really tough time in life. And, you know, people that I thought I would never have heard from again, you know, have, have reached out and, and, and it really helps you. It helps keep you going because you know that you made a difference to that one person. And a lot of times in mental health, we, we don't know. We work with, with a client for a certain number, you know, for a certain period of time. And then you just don't know. You kind of have to trust that what you did was enough. So, you know, it's nice when we get to hear um, how how something worked out for someone. So, Yeah, I, I love the Starfish story, Cece. I think uh, yeah. even further than that, the little boy could have said, um, and now that starfish I helped may be able to keep other starfish from getting in the same predicament. You know what I mean? That, yeah. That, that's where I went with it. I, I, I feel like the starfish, and now I feel like it's my job to inform the other starfish, hey, don't go up on that beach. It looks nice, but it's a death trap. You know? Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> so I think that's uh, when you, when you, that's, that's awesome. Um, well, CC, thank you for coming on here. I've, I've learned so much. Uh, that's, no problem. I feel well I appreciate you. Um, yeah, I really, really enjoyed our time. I love talking about, um, you know, anything mental health. And I'm, you know, I'm glad I was able to come on here and, and talk about something that we're both passionate about. So, you know, I appreciate your, your hard work and the people that you're, you're reaching. And, you know, never underestimate your story because you have an amazing story. Thank you. Um we may have to do a future episode. I'm going to, if if anyone out there has any questions, comments or anything, feel free to message me or comment on anything. And uh, maybe we'll have her come back on in the future and discuss, you know, her, what she's doing, the, the advances or stuff, new stuff that she's learned, the new stuff that I've learned and maybe answering your questions that y'all may have. Um, once again, thank you, Cece. Uh, Man, it's awesome to be able to learn. And when you hear the passion in somebody's voice, you know, it kind of like ignites a fire in you also. Like it, it's it's like then you start feeding off each other. And I I don't want to rush. Feel like free, I don't want you to feel like I'm rushing you off the phone, but I feel like I could talk to you no, all night. No, no. You know what I mean? So, um, no, it's definitely an, an overwhelming feeling because sometimes I get into these things where, you know, I feel like I have to know everything there is to know about mental health. And I have to remind myself, like, you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong learner, um, you know, so there's always going to be something to learn. And I think if we all, look at it that way we're all learning we're constantly learning so um you know yes i definitely look forward to you know a future future collaboration you know we got to make it happen for sure okay thank you cc all right jack well thank you so much and if you have any of your uh, listeners that reach out i will be more than happy to answer anyone's questions okay okay thank you